Well, good to see you again. This morning at precisely 8.23, I received a phone call letting me know that I was going to be preaching today. So, surprise! I think we made it through first service. I have not gotten any emails or complaints yet about preaching heresy, so um, Lord willing, we'll make it through this one again. I appreciate in advance your uh, grace as uh, we we walk through this uh, together. uh, Jesse, uh, everything is fine. The um, actually the soundboard had some issues this morning, and so when they went to record, uh, they recorded over last night's sermon uh, with a a video that didn't have any sound to it. And so, uh, anyway. Which is why you're, I'm here. But if you have a chance, the, Jesse's uh, sermon uh, will, will be up uh, later today as we continue working through First Timothy, and he'll be in chapter four. And I encourage you to uh, go do that. I was not prepared to preach through First Timothy chapter four, and uh, had a, at least a few moments this morning to to go. God, what would be something that would be good for us as a, a people here at Kent and um, this is where I've landed, so hopefully it will. Uh, the Lord will move in it. But uh, looking forward to being with you all today, and uh, again, thank you for your your grace. But one of the things uh, that has been the most delightful thing in in marriage, and it's it's really pronounced at the earliest phases of of your relationship when you're dating, is moving from knowing uh, the acts of someone to understanding the ways of someone. How many know that uh, two people can show up at the same place on time but get there in dramatically different ways? And one of the things that if you know my wife and I, you'll know we tend to be pretty prompt people. Uh, Having children has made that almost impossible uh, most of the time, but we, we used to be very prompt people and we get there, uh, get to places uh, on time. And, um, but as you get to know us and you know that the ways of Katie and I are a little bit different, we get there usually in very different fashions. Uh, Katie will leave you know, an additional 10 to 15 minutes early so that she can usually cruise about five miles under the speed limit and just kind of gently glide into her destination on time and uh, make it just fine. Uh, I oftentimes come with a police escort, which is not an escort, um, but uh, they, I am usually haul and tail uh, to get wherever it is that I'm going because I left a little bit late and I show up just enough over that starting time that it's close enough that I can say I landed there on time, but mine is quite a bit more stressful than my wife's. And so you see how you can be familiar with the acts of someone. You can look at us and go, oh, we both show up on time, but the ways that we get there are quite a bit different. And what you, when you come to know and understand someone and understand their ways, it's actually a, a piece of, of knowing somebody intimately. And it's a, one of the most joyful things as you get to know someone in friendship, get to know someone uh, in a dating relationship, is that you are brought into uh, the, the ways of how people work. And it's, it's, in, 
it's intoxicating in many ways as you're getting to know and you're allowed to be brought in uh, to, to stuff that other people don't know. And it's, it's an incredible joy. It's an incredible joy. I remember the first time that I realized that, uh, you know, and it's funny, I'm a guy and I, you kind of just make assumptions about women wearing makeup and, and all that. But I was just, I, when I found out that she really hardly wore any makeup, I was just kind of blown away. You know, I, I, I knew the acts, I knew that she was pretty when she showed up and was put together, but it blew me away that, you, you know, she didn't hardly do much of anything. And, and those are those moments that just knit you together in, in those relationships. And it's, it is what I think all of us desire uh, in relationships. Um, but one of the things that is interesting is that this has some incredible parallels in our relationship with the Lord. Because there are people uh, who prefer to know the acts of God, but would prefer not to know the ways of God. All right? We know that God moves. We understand that he did something, but we're very unfamiliar with the way that he did them. And a part of the challenge is that when we experience God this way, uh, we experience him as, uh, as not an intimate, personal uh, friend that is walking with us through life, but as kind of a, you know, the Wizard of Oz that's standing behind a curtain pulling all the, the, uh, the levers and making things happen, but we have no idea how or why God is doing it. And it's interesting, but... In Psalm 103, and again, I apologize, we're not going to have verses up on the screen, uh, so you'll just have to believe me um, that these are in the Bible. But Psalm 103 makes a very interesting statement about this, and he, he says that uh, he, God, made his, known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. And this isn't intended as a compliment. Some people read this and think, oh, you know, it's just a different way of saying the same thing, but it's not. Uh, because Moses walked with God in an intimate relationship. He knew the ways of God. But the Israelites consciously chose not to do that. When they were brought to Mount Sinai and uh, everybody was offered the opportunity to engage with God as Moses did, but what we're told is that the people didn't want it. And it says in Exodus 20, uh, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. We are watching what is a, a, a constant tension throughout humanity. You see it in church history. You see it in, in Jewish history. Uh, but it's this temptation for the, the masses to just uh, be content with knowing the acts of God and not being familiar enough, not walking in intimacy with God and knowing his ways. And Moses, you, you'll see, remained faithful, whereas the people of Israel really struggled to remain faithful. And I believe that this temptation that faced the Israelites today or in that day is many times the same temptation that we face. I mean, we've seen it most clearly in the Catholic Church, uh, obviously uh, been highlighted by the Protestant Reformation, uh, but there's this 
willingness to allow priests and the church hierarchy to be the mediators of God's word. That you have to experience God through a priest. And the Reformation, a big part of it was saying, no, 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 no. Everybody, the priesthood of all believers, everybody gets to know God's ways if they want to. But honestly, it can be hard. Just like marriage is hard. Walking in intimate relationship with God, a holy, perfect creator God, uh, is absolutely amazing and I wouldn't trade it for anything, but man, it's hard because I am not perfect. I know that's hard to believe, but uh, my wife will preach sermons on that if you would listen to her. Um, But it is challenging. And so many people just choose to step back and say, you know what, professional pastors, professional religious folk, you, why don't you just tell me what God is saying? Why don't you just tell me about the ways of God? And we'll, we'll follow that. But the problem is, is that it leads to a life that is not, uh, genuinely not satisfying in any way, shape, or form because it's not how you were created to live. God wants to walk with you. He wants you to know his ways. And when you do, it can mean the difference between surviving a challenging season of life or absolutely collapsing and falling apart. Because when you understand God's ways and you know how he works, as it has worked through history and you're walking with him, you can look at situations that you're in and discern what is genuinely of God and what is not of God. It's a profound thing. And so my heart today in, in talking to us is uh, as a campus that's walk, and a church that's walking through a lot of transition, that is got a lot of questions about how we're doing things, where we're going, and, and then just as individuals, as people. I know people are working, walking through very hard things right now and trying to understand what is God doing. My prayer is that we would be people that are familiar with his ways, that we wouldn't be content at just listening to podcasts and sermons, but that we would be a people that are intimately familiar with a God who wants to be known by us. So that's, that's kind of my thought today. So we're uh, going to be stepping into First uh, Corinthians, the book of First Corinthians, in, into two of the most famous chapters in all of Scripture. Uh, you hear uh, portions of them quoted in, in weddings. Uh, you hear it talked about in the life of the church quite a bit. And these are some of the, uh, this is a a letter that's actually written to one of the most dysfunctional Christian communities that they had, that we know in the New Testament. Uh, Paul had planted a church and he was writing a letter to, to this group of people that were fledgling Christians. And What's interesting at this point in time is that you have a group of people that uh, had grown up in a Greek world, with a Greek worldview, with Greek gods. And uh, in the Greek worldview, there were many gods that were doing things. And these gods fought together, they, or fought with one another. They um, you know, did lots and lots of crazy things together. And so, um, like all of us, uh, and some of it's more pronounced if you come to faith at a later, later age, you bring your worldview with you. And God begins to shape it according to his truth and his reality, but they, they brought some of that worldview with them that, uh, that they were now, uh, wor- Paul is working to help shape into a more Christian and in alignment with truth. But the interesting thing in this is that this group of people is experiencing the power and the presence of God in a way that is profound. Profound. 
They're, they're seeing people healed. They're seeing all of the gifts that are listed in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The charismatic gifts that uh, some people believe are not for today, others believe are. Um, but those things were in operation and those kind of crazy things, the fireworks, as my charismatic friends like to talk about, were happening in their midst. But they were happening to a people that had a terrible theological system, <laughs> which brings me so much hope that God is not bound by me having the correct theology. He can still move in our midst even when I have bad theology or thinking incorrect things. But these people were literally believing that all these different things, these manifestations of the spirit that Paul is called, calling them, are different gods that are doing it. So they've in, 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 or integrated the, their pagan beliefs with Christianity and they're saying, well, when that person was healed, it was the God of healing that did that, the spirit of healing. And when uh, that word of knowledge was given, it was the God of the word of knowledge that was offering it, or the spirit of word of knowledge. And Paul is writing to help go, no, 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 no. <laughs> this is one God and there's one body of Christ that these gifts are designed to build, be built up um, or these gifts are designed to, to build up. And it's, this, it's profound and it's a, a towering chapter on how, what the body of Christ is supposed to look like, how we're supposed to relate to one another in the body of Christ. And then Paul, as he's known to do, turns this corner in chapter 13. He's gone on about these gifts, their importance, the centrality to the, the life of, uh, of the church. And he then turns a corner to, to say, well, if you don't have, or if you have gifts, but you don't have love, it's meaningless. And so uh, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, this was one of the gifts, the charismatic gifts Paul illuminates here, that he encourages the people, like eagerly desire the, the gifts, and particularly prophecy. He's saying, if you can fathom all knowledge and speak intelligently into the, the core of a situation, but it's not motivated by love, if I have, but do not have love, I am nothing. Like all that knowledge, all that insight is worthless if God is, or if love is not uh, the motivating factor. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. He goes on to say, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Love, this powerful, powerful force, uh, is illuminated here and given just these unbelievable words about what love is supposed to be like, how God loves us and ultimately how we are called to love other people but the interesting thing here is that Paul goes on to, to help us understand something about the age to come, um, helps us keep our mind on, on what is coming in heaven and how these gifts are a part of that. He says, For we know, or, but where there are prophecies, 
they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. These are all gifts that Paul is talking about that has been given to these people. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. So if you think about it, uh, Paul is, is saying that these gifts that are given are given to help us understand the reality of heaven that's on the other side of a curtain that we can kind of see through but can't see clearly through. So it, it, it helps us to, to know, understand, but we only see partly. <laughs> we don't prophesy in fullness. We don't have full knowledge uh, of what's on the other side yet. And, but that's what these gifts do is they help us to be a part of experiencing the kingdom of heaven that's on the other side of that now on earth. But it says, uh, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So he's talking about the day when that veil is pulled back and we get to step into the fullness of, of heaven, fullness of the presence of God. And that is the end goal, is that as we grow up, that we're, we're gonna be uh, stepping into the life of God, stepping into what we would call heaven. But one of the things that's fascinating at that point is that we're told that our gifts disappear. Isn't that a little crazy to think about? When you get to heaven, the gifts that God has given you are not going to be necessary anymore because that veil is going to be torn. I remember the first time I thought about this, it actually made me a little uncomfortable because I'm not this wildly gifted person, but the gifts that I do have have certainly shaped my sense of my identity and my value uh, to a community, to the world, to my family, to my friends. What's heaven going to be like if all those things just don't matter? It's crazy to think about. But Paul is saying that there are things that are going to matter in heaven. There are things that don't just stop here and those are the things that if we're going to major on anything, if we're going to understand anything, that we want to deal with the stuff and, and plant our flag on the most important things. Because what was happening is that these gifts were just causing tons of division. People were thinking that this gift was better than this gift. And, if you had the, and it, it was creating so much conflict in people. And Paul is saying that, no, 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 no. <laughs> understand that. Like, these issues are not going to be a part of eternity. What is? And he says, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So Paul is saying that the way of the Spirit, the way of heaven, what's going to remain for us is faith, hope, and love. Now, I have had, you know, a Bible cover in middle school that had faith, hope, and love, and I've seen bumper stickers with it, keychains. It's a, sounds nice, and uh, it, it should sound nice because it is nice. <laughs> I mean, it's a positive thing, but like many things in modern Christianity, uh, when they become trinkets, 
when they become cliches that we, we just bandy about, oftentimes we get disconnected from the depth of the meaning of these words. And so a part of what I, I want to do is we're stepping into trying to understand the ways of God, the ways of heaven, the way that spir- the spiritual things work um, is not just like glossing over these things and saying, oh, that sounds nice, but actually taking a look at, at why this was significant for Paul and ultimately why it should be significant for us. So we're just going to walk through faith, hope, and love and uh, finish up with just a few thoughts on applying this uh, to our lives right now. So faith, which is a word that we use all the time, uh, we, a word that gets bandied about to describe the entirety of your walk with the Lord, like my faith, our faith, is a, a word that if you just have faith. And all those things are, are good, but sometimes we miss out on, on what this word actually meant in its context and it, it, how it's being used. And in Greek, uh, the word for faith is this word pistis which just means certainty. Now, we live in a time uh, where uh, doubt uh, seems to be the opposite of, of certainty, and I don't believe that fundamentally it is. But uh, faith, at its core, is certainty. It's, it's trust. It's moving ahead in life because someone has spoken up in a way that is, you can take it to the bank and move ahead with it. It's trust, it's certainty, it's absolute undeniable predictability. There's no risk when you have deep faith. Now, one of the things that's interesting is, I talked about it before, and I, I wanna be careful, doubt is actually, I, I don't think is a foil to faith. There are things in our life that God has not spoken clearly on. And in those areas, like, it makes total sense to have doubts from time to time. That doesn't mean that you're not believing the things that God has said. Doubt is, but here's the thing, though, in our, in our culture. Doubt is being lauded as if it's this virtue uh, amongst people. And doubt is never condemned, or I don't see it condemned. Uh, I see Jesus embracing people who are doubting, but it is never lauded, okay? It's never said that this is a virtue that you should aspire towards. Doubt is not a way to live. Um, I have doubts. I wrestle with doubts on a regular basis. And some of them are... Uh, based on things that have either happened in my life or things that I've seen or uh, my inability to understand, wrap my head around God's word. But those should not become the central points of our identity. They should not be what unite us as a Christian community. And that's what you see happen a a lot these days is that churches and communities will really elevate doubt, like, oh, yeah, this is great. And it's, uh, it, it's a, a unifying factor for people. And absolutely, we want people to know that, like, it is okay to not have this all figured out. It's okay to have questions. And you will probably have some of those until the day you die and get to meet God face to face. 
But let's not move from being a, a place that either doesn't value doubt at all to a place that lifts it up as, as if it's some virtue. Like we, we want to embrace it in, in the places that we have to, but faith is what is lauded. Certainty is what is lauded. The, the ability to move ahead uh, because of what God has said uh, is what we see elevated in Scripture. And so uh, what we do uh, find in, in the Scriptures is that faith is actually a gift from God. Many of us think that faith is something that we just have to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and just will it just a little bit harder, have that faith. But that's actually not what we see uh, Paul, under, how we understand Paul uh, making sense of faith. Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Your faith is a gift. Okay? Remember that. Like there was a, there's some mysterious partnership in it. Uh, but at the end of the day, faith is a gift from God. We're told that Jesus is actually the author and the perfecter of our faith. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, here's an interesting thing, and this is what really uh, triggered a lot of learning for me years ago uh, in moving from the generalities of talking about faith to the specifics of understanding faith and certainty as it applies in my life. Romans 10.7 says that faith comes by hearing the word, which is the word of God. So faith, certainty, is not just us going, this is going to happen. Faith is actually anchored in a specific thing that God has said or promised. When I grew up, my pastor told the illustration all the time that you can, I grew up in the Midwest where ice fishing was a big thing. Never really understood that, but um, that being aside, um, so you can drive a truck out onto ice that's six inches thick and have all the faith in the world that that ice is going to hold it, but your faith is placed in something that is very fallible and your truck is going to crash through. Okay? It's not the strength of your faith that's important. It's the object of your faith that's important. All right? So faith is not just this general belief, but it's actually a very specific thing that's anchored in the word of God. And we're told just a, a, a verse later that if we declare with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is a promise that God made and you can take it to the bank. That's what faith is, is that God has said he's going to save you, so you can have faith that God is going to save you, all right? Now, here's the thing, though, that, that kind of blew my mind. You can have faith for other things, okay? Meaning, God can promise you something, and you can move forward in full trust and confidence that God is going to do that in your life. So faith is specific, yes, about salvation, but we see people moving forward in faith all the time that God, because God has promised that he's going to do something. Maybe right now you're in a season where finances are just going haywire, 
And you're going, how are we going to make this through? Well, a part of it is, is going, well, what, well, and the challenge for me when I get to that point is, am I just going to believe some vague, you know, well, things will work themselves out? Or, you know, do I just trust myself to work harder? Do I believe in the good economy? Whatever it is uh, that I put my faith in. But in those moments, you have to anchor yourself to God's promises. What did he say about your finances? He said, don't worry. Don't worry. Imagine, see the lilies of the field? Do they not spin? And yet I tell you that Solomon in all of his splendor was clothed more beautifully than these. God, and how much more God loves you than the sparrows or the flowers. He's going to provide for you. May not be the way that you think that he's going to or that you'd like him to do it, but in those moments, you can move forward in faith, not just a generic, like, ill-informed optimism, but you can actually move forward in faith knowing that God is going to do something. That is what certainty is. It's not just, uh, faith is not just a descriptor of a relationship with God, but it's actually a way that we view the world and how we move forward. And oftentimes in our lives, when we're struggling with what to do, what we need is a word from God. What we need is clarity from God that, so that when we do move ahead, that when we encounter problems, we can actually use what God has said to beat back the enemy. I remember uh, when I first received the call to ministry, there was eight years between that first call and my first job in, in a church. And it was really hard. There were times of just deep confusion. And it, in those moments, Oftentimes, the only thing that you have to stand on, the only thing that you have to beat back the arrows of the enemy, the doubts, the fears, is what you know God has told you. It's all you have. People stop believing in you. Stop believing in yourself. But in those dark moments, when you have a word from God to stand on and to fight with, Oh my goodness, it changes everything because you can move forward in faith knowing that because God said it, it's going to happen. So there is a, an incredibly important thing here to remember that, uh, that faith is about specific things. Uh, faith uh, can be about more than just your salvation, God is asking us to live in faith and trust with him on the words that he is saying. But Jesus says that if we have the faith the size of a mustard seed, mustard seeds are just super small, that you'll be able to tell this mountain to fall into the sea. Now that's not because we have some crazy power or bulldozer hiding behind the, the scenes that nobody knows about. It's because our faith... <laughs> though it's small, comes from hearing the word that God said this mountain is going to fall into the sea. And when you begin to partner with him in your prayer life to move those mountains into the sea, God will bring it about. Again, it's not the strength of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith that matters. If the word of God is the foundation of your faith, 
no matter what happens ahead, you will be able to move forward in a meaningful way. But if you are continuing to anchor your faith in your strength, your skill, whatever, you are going to have a very, very hard day ahead. So what happens over time is that as we see God promise things and we act in faith and he comes through on what he promises, it begins to fundamentally shift the way that we view the world. We begin to expect good things or we become hopeful. So the Greek word, uh, elpis, uh, which is translated as hope, uh, is the expectation of good things. Most of the time when Christians and other people talk about their faith, what they're actually saying is that they have hope, okay? It's rooted in the general character of God. We believe God is good. (laughs) It's it's rooted in in the fact that we've seen God do good things in the past. But there's a difference between saying, I have faith that this disease is going to be healed and I have hope that this disease is going to be healed. Does that make sense? There's a huge difference between the two. One is, if you're saying it, it indicates that you're rooting that in the word of God. Hoping is acknowledging that we may not have that uh, specifically said, but we do believe that God is good and he desires for, for people to be healed. We see it happening. Uh, but it allows room uh, for things to be different. And hope um, is, is different, but oftentimes that's actually what people are referring to when they're talking about faith. It's just a, it's a general positive outlook. But uh, what we're told, though, is that hope is hard-earned. It's not something that you, you just get, uh, but you actually have to earn it. And we're told in Romans 5 that therefore... Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access to this faith in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So what happens is that if you think about each of these stories in your life where God has spoken in faith that he's going to do something and then he actually does it because that's what happens, it begins to almost lay like a foundation underneath you. Each one of those, uh, those examples are places that begin to become this, uh, this platform whereby we live life. And what happens is for people that have experienced God move multiple times, seen him come through over and over and over again, is that they become to be hopeful. They begin to, to just believe that good things are going to happen because they know the character of God. They know they're familiar with his ways. And it, it alters the way that we look at the world. It alters the way that we look at people because we can look at situations that are, seem to be absolutely catastrophic and know that God can turn them around because we've seen it happen. We've seen him do it. And so even if I don't have a specific faith, a specific sense that God is committing to do something in a situation, that doesn't mean that I can't have hope. It doesn't mean that I can't believe that God is good and, and know that he can transform these things, even if I don't know yet if he is going to. But 
when you are walking through hard times, though it, it literally is the, the, it's like water and rain to the seed of faith that, that's planted in your life that grows up into a tree of hope. It's suffering and perseverance. Because when you, there's nothing that's gonna test your faith, there's nothing that's gonna test your hope like walking through bad times and being called upon to still believe the goodness of God. But what we're told is that in the end, that hope that's anchored in who God is does not disappoint us. It will not disappoint us. Hope is not optimism. Optimism tends to be a spin job on reality where hope, I believe, deals with reality. It's not afraid to look it in the eye uh, because hope knows that God, there's a God who defines reality and has good for us in store. So the optimist looks at the glass half full. The pessimist looks at the glass half empty. The hopeful person sees the glass and says that whatever is in there is enough because I know that God gives us enough. You see the difference? It doesn't deny what's going on. It accepts it within the greater context of the goodness of who God is and that he is a provider. He has provided. He will continue to provide. So when hope has taken root in our hearts and begins to change the way that we see the world and we see people differently, uh, we begin to see the possibilities in hopeless situations or what would many, many people would call hopeless situations. We can see lives that have fallen apart and go, you know what? God's not done with you yet. I see what is possible. I see the possibilities. I can dream with people with a hope for the future for them. And that's what a hopeful people do, is they can see the possibilities, which ultimately at that point is a key part of the last piece of love. I would define love as uh, to, is to fight for the highest possible good and the life of another. Oftentimes we talk about love and what we're talking about is desire. Love as far as agape love, God love is, is, to, is the self-sacrificial giving of yourself for the benefit of another person. It can be very emotional, but it's not by nature necessarily emotional. But the problem is, is that if you don't see the possibilities in the life of people, how are you going to fight for their highest possible good? All of us, all of us are in process. All of us have dark moments and we can very easily become defined by our worst moments. But when God looks at us, he sees the possibilities. When I am hopeful, I can sit with someone that is, has everything going wrong and say, you know what, God can snap his fingers and all of this can change. He probably won't snap his fingers and have everything change. He's probably gonna take you through a process. But God can change it. And I can be a hopeful person. And then because I'm seeing that, what I can do is I can actually love that person. I can fight for that good in their life. 
I can be praying for it. I can be working to resource the people and getting them into a better place. But if you don't have hope, it's going to be very hard to love, to spur on to action. I fundamentally believe that one of the, the issues of the crisis we have of love in our culture, we, it's a wonderful idea. People sing about it all the time and we need it. We know that we do. But if you don't have hope, it's unbelievably hard to love. And that's why it just descends into mere sentimentality and not the powerful, agape, life-altering, uh, fighting for the highest possible good in the life of another. And so as you think about all of these things in your life, it's oftentimes a really helpful thing for me to sit with and go uh, as a diagnostic tool for my soul. Like if I'm struggling with love for my wife, for my kids, and I'm not talking about affection, I'm talking about struggling to, to want to actually lay down my life for them because <laughs> I want to be selfish. Oftentimes it's because I've lost a vision of what God is doing in their life. I don't have hope for them. And so what, rather than just trying to push myself and pull myself together and just love them, I should begin praying that the Lord would give me his eyes of hope for this person, for my kids, for a person that's come in for counseling and during the week. And oftentimes, if my hope is not there, if I'm struggling with hope, I dig back into that faith piece of things. Like remembering what God has done, taking time to be grateful for all those instances where God has promised to do something and he has done it. And man, when you choose to do that, it will raise your hope infinitely. I mean, it's, it's amazing how much a difference it will make when you remember God's promises. And so at the end of the day, uh, why do I say this to us? Why did I think this was worth pulling out uh, today? Well, like our church is walking through a lot. There's a lot of good stuff going on and God's moving. Um, but there's a lot of transition. It's uh, challenging at times. It can be overwhelming at times. And I know not just that, but people are walking through challenging situations at home, at work, with their families. Life is hard. But if we don't have the promises of God to stand on through these times, we're going to have a hard time believing that good things are going to happen. And we're going to have a really hard time actively caring and loving for the people that are right around us. If we don't have a sense of hope that God is going to do positive things in the future, it actually turns us inward and makes us very passive. And we can't allow that to happen. We can't allow ourselves to lose hope. We can't allow ourselves to lose faith during these times because God is on the move. And I, just like you, have days where I have to go back and remember the promises of God. Just like you, I have to take time to remember these times that I, did, I had lost everything, but like the last little seed of hope that I had, and God still came through. And I take that into the, the challenging times, just remembering that 
This wasn't a surprise to him. God has not given up on us. He's shown up in the past and he's going to show up in the future. I am hopeful. And so I would encourage you all today, uh, take an inventory, consider the place that the Lord wants you to invest and how he wants to speak so that you can move forward in your life in faith and not just well wishes about the future. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're grateful this morning to be able to learn and be reminded of the ways that you work in our midst. And I know it's easy in times of stress and confusion to fall back on uh, the things that we do well, to depend on ourselves, uh, to isolate, to, um, yeah, to pull away from the people that we need. And Lord, it's during these times that I know you're calling us uh, to push inward, to push into one another uh, the way that you uh, pursue us. And so Lord, we, we ask for a grace uh, in this season of faith. I pray that uh, the people that are here, Lord, that you would speak words of faith uh, into the areas that they're having major questions about their life right now and needing to hear from you. And Lord, that we would be a people of hope knowing that you're never done with someone, knowing that you are continuing to, to fight for the highest possible good in the lives of all of your people. And so we turn to you, Lord, and we know that uh, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. We need it. We need it, Lord. So speak to us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.